This is the recording for the second chapter, The Politics of Patriarchy, A Case Study of Kate Millett's Sexual Politics for the course Women and Empowerment. This chapter discusses in brief the women's movement across uh, the world, specifically the West and the French feminist movement, and then discusses Kate Millett's uh, book called The Sexual Politics. We're going to talk about the context of why Kate Millett's book is specifically important or how it created, in a certain sense, um, a particular direction which the feminist movement took. Uh, the way that we understand the feminist movement today is predicated to a very large extent on all of these different feminist movements across the world, across historical time and also in different places, different cultural contexts. Um, the reason perhaps why this is important to discuss before we go into larger issues of women and law, ecofeminism, of how um, Dalit women are represented in um, in male literature in male socio-political uh, representations and um, and more definitely more complex and more serious issues like the representation of women in partition and those kind of historical um, general historical uh, sort of issues um, the reason why it is important to discuss all of this uh, the move the feminist movement before we go into all of that is perhaps because our understanding of what it means um, to um, you know, to look at feminism per se as an ideological movement, as um, as a as a social structure through which we understand ideas like femininity, masculinity. How do we relate to these kind of ideas? All of that is associated to a very large extent on how these feminist movements have been articulated, what were the inspiration behind these movements, and also how they've been interpreted in popular imagination and how they've influenced popular uh, views in certain senses. So. Uh, uh, the writer of the chapter, Sumita Puri, actually starts by talking about the, uh, you know, the introduction is fairly similar to what we've already talked about in the first chapter, which is the politics of patriarchy, how patriarchy actually functions, how these are, um, how gender is actually a social construct rather than a biological construct. And that is something that Kate Millett would also talk about. So we're going to come to that when we come to the second part of the chapter. The first part actually talks about the feminist movement in the West and uh, Puri actually starts a discussion by talking about Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, uh, text called A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Now this book was published in 1792. This is, the, this is the fag end of the 18th century and it's important to sort of understand what is the historical context within which Wollstonecraft is actually working to really understand the force of the argument that she was making. I'll start actually by uh, reading out the quote which is on page number 34 of the book. Uh, the first object of laudable ambition is to obtain a character as a human being regardless of the distinction of sex and that secondary views should be brought to this simple touchstone. Everything else apart, the secondary views, the secondary ideas apart. What you have to really begin with, the first object of any kind of discussion in this direction should be that women have to be considered human beings. Now, it might sound like a fairly simple and slightly tautological point to us in the 21st century, but in the late 18th century, when Wollstonecraft is writing, it was considered, uh, it was considered in a sense, biologically determined that women were, in terms of evolutionary practices and in terms of evolutionary status, women were considered to be, uh, in some senses, less evolved than men. So it was considered to be a biologic. It, it was considered to be biologically determined that women are not as intellectually, as socially, as politically, as physically, or even as emotionally evolved, rational, 
as men were what it does very interestingly is that it it, it creates a sort of a vicious circle which has been used by all all manners of uh, you know hierarchical systems whether they're political whether they're social or they're gender based like here what it does is that it it uh, it stopped women from having access to any kind of intellectual political social or educational opportunities which basically meant that they were not able to develop the same kind of um, the same kind of aptitudes that men would they were not able to do the same kind of things that men would they were not able to understand intellectually they were not as um, they were not as sharp as men were which then went on to justify exactly the premise on the basis of which they were uh, on the basis of this these opportunities were actually uh, you know uh, denied to them which is that they are less evolved than men so by saying that they were less evolved than men they were uh, they, they were uh, refused um intellectual social political opportunities and because then they were not able to perform in these kind of spheres as well as men so it led back to the same kind of premise and it validated the premise or the fundamental uh, belief uh, from which the soul began which is that they are not as evolved as men and hence they should not be given the opportunities so uh, in the hands of these kind of or because of these kind of you know vicious circle which vicious circles in all manners of spheres actually uh, because of which women were not allowed to do anything um, the first objective of proto feminists feminists who were feminists before feminism as we understand it today proto feminism um, that is proto feminism that is called proto feminism so proto feminists like wollstone craft actually began by saying that if we can just reach the point in history or reach the point in our social understanding and social acknowledgement to say that women are just human beings at the same level of rational emotional and even biological development as men then perhaps from there other issues can be taken up and other fights and other uh, you know sort of um, other other more sophisticated problems can be dealt with but that's the first thing that needs to be done so that's what wollstone craft actually begins with and which is why and this is why uh, wollstone craft's text is actually seen as the beginning of this whole discussion on how the world is actually or society is divided on the basis of men and women and um, then she talks about um, an essay actually written by john stuart mill in 1869 which is called the subjection of women he wrote this in conjunction with his uh, wife who was also a philosopher but still in the 19th century when uh, john stuart mill is writing women were not allowed or women were not um, they were not accepted their intellect was not accepted to be as sharp or as um, as well developed as men so of course um her name is usually not um, added or in 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 most discussions at least it was not at that time now of course everybody knows that that's the case so the subjection of women is uh, is a very interesting text because it doesn't start off by asking for the right of education and the right of individual liberty and freedom for women from a feminist perspective mill has a slightly different um uh, agenda in a certain sense he was a utilitarian and utilitarianism in that sense is a political um, ideology the students of political science perhaps would have an idea of what it is about the basic um, sort of slogan of utilitarianism was the greatest good for the greatest numbers which sounded it sort of sounds like a good thing to have if uh, if if any ideology is predicated on something which sounds as socially beneficial as the greatest good for the greatest numbers it must be a good thing 
but um, it has its problems of course and for those of you who might be interested Charles Dickens actually takes up the negative side of or the problematic aspects of utilitarianism in a lot of his uh, books like Hard Times um, and a lot of other texts as well so this is something that continues well into the 20th century to some extent at least. Um, so the reason why John Stuart Mill said that women should be educated and they should be given equal um, opportunities is precisely because he thought that why should half the population of the world, women, why should half the population of the world be sitting at home and not contributing to the economic machinery? If their contribution to the economy, to the politics and to the social spheres can actually bring about prosperity and, um, you know, and, and better management, if their work can actually be a contribution to society, then they should not be allowed to stay at home and not be educated. So his, so his, uh, his ideological, uh, you know, leaning in that sense is more towards a political understanding of how larger society functions, rather than um, rather than a purely feminist um, kind of um, an inspiration. So that context is sort of important to understand. The other book that uh, she talks about uh, immediately after is the book called The Feminine Mystique in 1963, which is written by Betty Friedan. Now, Betty Friedan's book is very, uh, it, it's very, very important. And when I start talking about Kate Millett, I'm going to have a small conversation, a minute or so about this book as well. Because both of the books, the inspiration for both of the books, in a certain sense, is the, is the same kind of historical impetus. This is the generation which sort of grows up after the world wars. They become uh, teenagers and they become they, they're in the twenties and thirties. They're young youngsters. This is the first generation after the, after the world wars. And the kind of change that comes about in discussions in gender discussions because of the change in the historical, social, political, economic, um, you know, a milieu of um, of USA uh, in the nineteen sixties and in the nineteen seventies is what leads to the discussion. It it's. Uh, it leads to the discussion which then leads to the publication of books like The Feminine Mystique and Sexual Politics. So when I talk about that, I'm going to come back to this particular book. Um, however, there is a, there, there's a quotation by Betty Friedan here. Please read it up. And then she talks about Mary Elman's thinking about women, Kate Millett's sexual politics, Elaine Shaw Walters, a literature of their own, British women novelists from Bronte to Lessing and so on and so forth. Now, she does talk about a lot of other uh, books, but she gives then... Um, a small distinction that Elaine Showalter, the book that we were just talking about, um, the distinction that Elaine Showalter gives in her book, A Literature of Their Own. And she divides this, um, the way that women have engaged with literature, either as writers or as critics, the way that they have engaged with literature uh, throughout literary history, and she divides it into three phases, the feminine, feminist, and female. And it's important to remember what I talked about earlier, the way that the idea or the, uh, you know, the terms, ideologies of feminism or feminist movement or masculinity or femininity, the way that these terms are understood throughout history, they differ uh, according to the historical time in which these discussions are being taken up. They also differ according to the cultural contexts within which or through which, through which prism these kind of discussions are actually being taken up. So when Showalter is actually talking about this, she is talking about it primarily in a literary sense. And you can transpose the same ideas to the socio-political development of 
uh, of the feminine individuality in a certain sense but she's talking about it specifically from a literary perspective and from a western literary perspective and the reason another reason why i am insisting on the fact that all of these ideas or understandings of feminism is different is because even as this chapter sort of maps out the different ways in which feminism has been understood the different definitions of feminism the different divisions in uh, uh, you know which the feminist movement or feminist understanding of different aspects of society have taken up uh, one is show walter's division of the feminist literary association um, into the feminine the feminist and the female and then there is the historical the larger historical division of the socio political feminist movement which is uh, divided into three phases the first wave the second wave and the third wave of uh, feminism and we're going to talk about that as well then there is a difference also there's a very large difference in how feminism has been understood in different kinds of places different kinds of cultures in west it's very different from how it's been understood in india which is why the next chapter is about the different feminist movements in india ecofeminism is another way in which um, indian feminists have uh try to associate with or try to deconstruct the idea of how patriarchy functions and how it affects different aspects of human life it's not just an ideological uh structure which affects women alone and we've been talking about it over and over again so black feminism is 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 another or latino feminism is another aspect of the feminist movement very very important in their own right which have not even been touched in these kind of discussions so anyway coming back to elaine showalter's um discussion she says that there are three phases one is the feminine the other one is the feminist and the third one is the female this is on page number 35 she says the feminine um sort of category or time period is that one of the prolonged phase of imitation of the prevailing modes of dominant tradition an internalization of social roles and this is the first phase of any kind of um, you know any any kind of journey towards a feminist uh, understanding of uh, individual identity in any sense so what happens is because women have been taught or masculinity has been understood in so throughout centuries as a relational identity relational to the masculine whatever the man is um is not is the woman so the woman becomes a negation of man man is rational the woman is the opposite or the negation of that man is um non emotional uh, man is scientific and the woman is the exact opposite or negation of that kind of a scientific uh, impulse so in that sense because w- women have understood their own femininity as a relational identity to men for such a very very long time when women started or when women were given any kind of space in literature it started in 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 the late 17th century it was very sketchy at the time and it was not given any kind of merit but it became very very important throughout the 18th um very less actually in the 18th century but in the 19th century it becomes very very important but still what women do when they start writing or when they start when they're given space into any kind of uh, any kind of an academic discipline or any kind of a profession professional space at all what they do is that they imitate the behavior of men because that's the only kind of a stereotype that is available to them so when women start writing literature for example and we're talking about it only because show walter talks about it in literary terms um when women start writing literature they start repeating the same kind of stereotype that men have written about them for a very very long time so when men have been writing about women throughout the ages whether it's the helen of troy or it's abhijan chakuntalam from um, you know from classical sanskrit poetry they have been seen as the recipients of masculine love they've been seen as shy coy um, domestic all of these 
are ways in which masculinity or patriarchy looks at women and when women started writing initially in the feminine phase they rearticulated but they repeated the same kind of ideas so they they were just imitating the way that men had been talking about them or men had been existing and representing themselves in these kind of spheres before then comes the feminist phase which is a phase of protest against these values and advocacy of minority rights and values and a demand for autonomy so in the first phase of the feminist movement in a lot of places when women started saying that they should be given equal rights as men and they were asked what is it what it is that you want a lot of them asked for the uh, asked for the kind of life that men have which is fairly problematic so they thought that the way in which an autonomous identity can be created is by replicating what men did in the second phase what happens is that it is the feminist phase according to showalter what happens here is that women realized or feminists realized um or f- female writers they realized that um just imitating what men have been doing is propagating and sustaining the same kind of system in which the stereotypes about women don't change and if the system doesn't change it's the oppression is in the system if you remember we talked about it in the last class is a system which politicizes different kinds of acts and different kinds of identities the identities in themselves are not problematic labor in itself is not problematic right when marx talks about labor he talks about it in a sexual way but when you divide it into the feminine um, you know uh, feminine kind of labor or masculine kind of labor or upper class kind of labor or lower class kind of labor that is when it becomes hierarchical and that is when it becomes problematic so it's the politicization that is problematic and in the feminist phase when female writers started realizing that um, you know to propagate the same kind of system is to propagate the same way in which women have been harassed for a very long time if we also talk about women in the same way in which they are uh, their the role their roles as mothers as sacrificial um, you know mother goddesses or as women who have to engage in domestic labor without expecting anything in return and these are just some stereotypes you know by no means an exhaustive list when women started reiterating and repeating the same kind of stereotype then the actual position of women is never going to change so the feminist phase is a phase of protest when they realize that the that individual voices have to be understood and uh, one problem with patriarchy is that it it equates all women in a certain sense on the same stage so one woman is equal to all women what one woman is all other women are so this is the phase in which people started saying that individual voices and individualities should be given a lot of importance so that's the feminist phase the female phase is the phase of self discovery turning inward freed from some of the dependency of opposition a search for identity and this perhaps can be understood in ways in which a lot of feminist writers or female writers have of late started looking at what it is to be a woman what it is to understand one's relation a woman's relationship with the stereotype of femininity without looking at it as a relation to masculinity so what would women be if they were not constantly being compared to or if they were not constantly being looked at as negations of men so in and of themselves what masculinity or uh, i mean what femininity or in relation to that of course masculine studies also does the same thing so what masculinity would be without this kind of a dialogic parasitical relationship with each other what that would actually be like so um, that's the female phase if you guys still don't understand it please get back to me and we can perhaps i can perhaps um, record another lecture about this and then send it across so there are three phases which correspond to the feminist movement 
and it is given here um, in your book on page number 35 it's just historical um, categorization so i'm not going to go into that the feminist movement in france is the next uh, uh, is the next topic the reason why uh, it is important to read um, or it's important to give at least a little bit of attention to what was happening in france was because uh, a large number of the feminists who have been instrumental in creating uh, the feminist creating uh, the idea of feminism the way that we understand it now uh, in and of itself um, um you know has been a large part of it is because of feminist french feminists like elaine shaw walter we just talked about her mary elman sandra gilbert susan goober kate millet and so on and so forth but um all of these are american feminists who have taken their inspiration from french feminists like simone de beauvoir luce irigare um and simone de beauvoir's text which is called the second sex which is published in 1949 is one of the fundamental texts um of the feminist movement and um Beauvoir was actually an existential philosopher. She was a philosopher, one of the first, even in the French philosophical tradition. She was a lifelong partner of you guys. Some of you might have heard the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. She was a lifelong partner of Jean-Paul Sartre, who was also an existential philosopher. Unfortunately uh, for uh, Beauvoir, unfortunately for us. Um, a lot of her existential work is now not as popular as the second sex because it was seen as the fundamental sort of handbook for a creation of an independent feminist movement something that had not happened before at least in these kind of theoretical and largely philosophical terms now the reason why that is important is because um when feminism as an academic discipline it it becomes validated when people start saying that it is it is all right and it is it is valid to talk about feminism in a theoretical sense it is um it it gives it a certain kind of um you know historical and popular validity as well it it means that it has substance enough there is enough um academic rigor there is enough um there is there is enough scope for investigation there and that's a very uh, that's a long way to have come from the time when mary wollstonecraft was writing when she was saying that there is of course discrimination between the way that men and women are being treated you have to at least treat women as human beings to saying that at that very primal primordial fundamental level just to say that women should be considered as human beings to coming this far when you can say that women's issues are complicated intellectually um you know demanding enough for them to be studied as disciplines in schools of high theory of philosophy by philosophers of existentialism um and simone de beauvoir uh, was a brilliant brilliant philosopher and uh, she was seen uh, in a lot of senses as an equal to jean paul sartre who was at the who was at who was at his peak who was at the head of the philosophical sort of um discussions in France at the time and for somebody of that stature and of that kind of a background to start talking about women's issues and feminism as an as as a discipline as an academic discipline it's it's a long journey to have taken so it's a it's a great validation that happens with Simone de Beauvoir's the second sex um and then of course there are a lot of other uh, books that 
Sumita Puri actually talks about. If you guys want, we can have a discussion about these other books also. But they all just go on to creating the same kind of you know sort of feminist tradition that we've been talking about. So I'm not going to go to individually talking about all of these books. Some of these books I have discussed in the notes that I've sent to the college. Uh, website please take a look at it uh, again if you have any confusion um, you should definitely come back to me um, the next um, the, ne- the next topic that Puri actually talks about is feminism or feminisms which is the same kind of uh, difference that I was talking about black, black feminists radical feminists theoretical feminists um, contemporary lesbian feminists liberal feminists and so on and so forth so there are different ways in which feminism has been articulated and uh, one of the other extreme ways in which uh, feminism has been understood um, or the way in which different kinds of academic um, you know, paradigms have been incorporated into feminism is, um, uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit, when Kate Miller talks about Jean Genet's uh, works, The Balcony and so on and so forth, in which uh, homosexual relationships in which one is the dominant partner, both in uh, male homosexual relationships as well as in female homosexual relationships, one is the masculine partner the other the other one is a feminine partner whether they are whether you know whether the relationship is between two men or two women the dominant partner is usually seen as the one who exhibits the properties of or characteristics of masculinity and the one who is dominant the receiving partner is usually considered to be the feminine partner and in that sense um, you know the, this distinction this idea that gender is actually a social ideological construct and it's got nothing to do with the body per se it becomes even more sort of pronounced and becomes even more clear in a certain sense um, so there are uh, this particular portion is not difficult at all there are very small uh, discussions about these different kinds of feminisms I have talked about some of them in the um, in the document as well if you still want another discussion about it uh, we can have it but these are fairly this fairly superficial kind of uh, descriptions they're not in-depth discussions so I'm not going to um, stop at that uh, the third wave of feminism um, According to the book, and technically it's correct also, the, the third wave of feminism was an interdisciplinary kind of feminism. When people realize that it's not just enough to talk about a Western, um, you know, the, the issues and the experiences of Western women, and then say that those are the only things or those are the only kind of um, feminisms or those are the only kind of issues that should be talked about in theoretical f- feminism. So um, after the third phase of feminism, which uh, started off with and which validated interdisciplinary studies, and by interdisciplinary studies it means that um, you know feminism. Then um, there were a lot of um, discussions. There were a lot of studies which were done, which talked about or which saw how um, different kinds of disciplines can be combined with gender studies, with feminism. And I think gender studies is a politically more correct. Uh, phrase to use so how Marxism sort of intersects with um, gender studies how post-colonialism intersects with gender studies how film studies intersects with gender studies popular uh, studies uh, interjects um, intersects with um, gender studies and so on and so forth and then of course is different kinds of feminisms as well so how all of those actually come about now the next portion of the chapter is um, Kate Millett's sexual politics and before I start talking about anything else I have to talk about uh, why uh, you know why sexual politics uh, by Millett is actually such an important text. Uh, Millett's politics, sexual politics was actually published in 1970 
Betty Friedan's book was published, The Feminine Mystique was published in 1963. And in a certain sense, uh, what Friedan starts in 1963, the kind of issues that she picks up, uh, Millet sort of takes uh, those issues even further and um, creates a more academic kind of a discussion about how um, the popular representations that Friedan talks about can also be seen um, in academic or, um, or or disciplinary sort of um, you know representations, how um, they become validated in academic works, literary and otherwise also in a lot of places. So uh, when Friedan started writing um, the feminine mystique, or the reason why she started writing the feminine mystique was because in the 1950s and in the 1960s. So if you remember the World War ends in the 1940s. Second World War, and it's not just the date on which uh, the Second World War actually ends. It's you know when the economy and the political systems and the social systems when they start recuperating from the effects of the Second World War, and after that, in the 1950s, to a certain extent, um, you know the society, um, the West actually comes to a little bit of a stasis. A little bit of stability is achieved in in that sense. So um, after that. Um, I don't think actually we've had a discussion about how uh, women participated in the World War, so maybe we should uh, spend about two minutes discussing that as well. So in the Second World War, um, in the First World War itself, there were a huge number of casualties that ended and then the Second World War began. And by the time the Second World War began, and because these two World Wars were so closely at the heels of each other, um, a lot of men, a lot of young men, a lot of old men went into the First World War. They never came back. Those who came back came back maimed or uh, suffering from psychological disorders, PTSD, post, um, uh, you know, post-trauma stress disorder. I think that's that's what it's called. Um, so during the Second World War, uh, whoever was able to go to the war from the West, they went. And the economy uh, sort of started receding into shambles. There was nobody to go into the factories. There was nobody to go into the fields. So food could not be produced. Uh, the arms, ammunition, clothes, other kinds of everyday products which were required by the civilians back home who could not freely go out. They were not being produced. Uh, whatever was required by the soldiers on the war front, they were not being able to produce. So there was, uh, uh, people realized, um, the economy and the industry heads, they realized that they needed manpower, as it is usually called, the power of man to run the economic system and the economic machinery. And because there were no other men left, a lot of them had died in the First World War, the rest, who were, whoever was left, had gone to the Second World War. There were only very little boys and very old men who were left at home. So they realized that the only kind of workforce that they could get was the women's workforce. So then there was this whole campaign which began in the 1930s onwards, um, and it gained force through the Second World War, um, wherein... Um, People started saying that women were as intellectually capable as men, so they are the ones who should go out into the factories. There was also the sense of nationalism which was associated with it. So if you love your country, you would go out and despite your intellectual handicap, you would contribute to the economic machinery. But at the same time, there was this huge uh, social campaign in a certain sense which was started off wherein women were constantly told that they were capable of going out and doing the things which for so many centuries, which for, which for 
about 19th centuries or 20th centuries they had been told that they were not capable of they were biologically deficient in doing and they were intellectually um, you know incapable of um, doing so suddenly the tides changed and women were told that they were capable of doing all of these things and they were encouraged to go out and they were encouraged to become part of the economic machineries women did a lot of women did go out they started working and then when the wars ended and by the time uh, you know you come to the 1950s and 1960s the first generation after the wars has sort of grown up and there are a lot of men who can become part of the um, you know of the economic system so then there was again in in the us and there was again this this stress on the increased femininity and domesticity of women uh, where in popular imagery as well as um, in a lot of ways it was propaganda popular imagery as propaganda started telling women that their true happiness and their true um, space their true uh, work lay in the domestic space so a lot of women were being encouraged to go back to working as housewives and um, a lot of you, you even if you don't watch movies and um, other if if you don't have access to any other popular imagery you can see a lot of advertisements they are all over the internet a lot of advertisements from the 1950s 1960s even 1970s uh, encouraged women to become housewives and they were again being told what they had been told except for that space of the world wars uh for throughout centuries and throughout human history they were again being told that their actual <clears throat> space and their actual work lay at home so there was a lot of crises in a certain sense a crisis of individuality and existential crises which a lot of women faced because they were being told because they were because the social stereotypes of women being at home were being reinforced again so a lot of women uh, left work they went back to being housewives a lot of women who grew up uh, with these kind of ideas stayed housewives and they thought that that's what they were supposed to do that's what their that's where their happiness lay but a lot of them were conflicted and that's exactly where betty friedan's uh, feminine mystique actually takes off from there's a there's a very famous story about the book betty friedan um, was actually she went to college and uh, i think about 15 years after she passed out from college she was a journalist if i'm not wrong uh, 15 years after she was uh, she passed out from college there was a reunion for the college and for the reunion betty friedan because she was already a journalist she was given the task of um you know uh, collecting the life stories of all the women she went to a women's college collecting the life stories of all the women who had uh, passed out 15 years ago and to talk about how happy they were and what all they had achieved in life and when she started collecting stories betty friedan sort of got a sense that from amongst all of these women and education has always been very very expensive in the us so a lot of so a larger number of the women um who were um um who betty friedan got in touch with and who were her classmates um 15 years ago they were women who were from um upper middle classes or from rich families so a lot of these women when she collected their stories she got a sense that a lot of these women even though they were they were married to successful men they had big houses there was no material discomfort they were all living very very uh, good lives in a certain sense in the material sense but most of them were very very unhappy because they did not have a sense of satisfaction of having done anything particularly valuable in their lives except for taking care of their families and while they were constantly being told that their happiness lay in only and only in taking care of their families uh, it did lead to a certain sense of individual vacuum right vacuum of individuality 
nothing in their lives was specifically uh, for their own selves and that's when she started articulating why there might be this kind of a disjunction in between what was being told to women and what they actually felt and that's uh, what the feminine mystique is actually all about um seven years later kate miller writes sexual politics uh, this was her phd dissertation which then she uh, converted into a book and she actually starts by uh, talking about two or three of um of very very famous american novels and how the idea of um you know uh, the with very act of engaging in um you know sexuality expressing sexuality or um, engaging in sexual acts in itself which is considered socially to be so private and so intimate um is also um it's it's also uh, defined by in a lot of senses the social construction of gender the idea of hierarchy does not even uh, stay away from or it affects to a very 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 large uh, you know extent how people understand their own sexuality and how people understand um the hierarchies of or the politics of um the act of sexuality as well so she talks about how uh, the representations of sexuality in popular literature was also one in which masculinity was usually seen as being validated by overpowering the sexuality of women now there are various ways in which of course this can happen uh, and one sees this you know throughout um, you know expressed fairly obviously and fairly openly in popular culture in bollywood movies in uh, movies um pornography is fairly easily available if one says that nobody has access to it it will be slightly foolish so everybody has access to that and in all of these spaces the female sexuality is usually seen as a way of validating masculine sexuality and usually men validate themselves or the sense of masculinity by validating or overpowering female sexuality and that's basically what um kate millet started to talk about and if you think that it's taboo to talk about sexuality now uh, even in classrooms even in academic discussions where um there is no other innuendo involved think about how difficult it would have been to talk about it in the 1970s and especially for a woman however if you look at the ways or the number of spaces in which sexuality is openly discussed in the name of literature in the name of popular imagery in the name of um well pornography and in all of the other places the way in which it is openly represented there has to be uh, the you know you have to think about why there is such a distance or discord in between such open representations of sexuality but no real discussions about why the representations of sexuality are um you know are done in the way that they are done and what are the politics behind this kind of representations what does it tell us about ourselves as a society that we are ready to consume sexuality the way that it is easily um talked about in honey sing songs for example when he talks about the, the all of the songs are basically predicated on the fact that there is a man who um, 
who is talking openly about the sexuality of the woman of somebody that he um, claims to love in a certain sense but all of female sexuality is openly objectified reduced to body parts or to sexual acts in certain senses right so if there is such open access to sexuality or representations of sexuality why isn't there an open discussion about what the politics of these kind of representations is there definitely shouldn't be which is basically what kate millet talks about now um it would definitely be required um to some extent for you to know what uh, kate millet is talking about but the fact that the fact is that if you've not actually read the texts that she's talking about um you would not be able to understand um what her discussion is except for the fact that uh, when she talks about when kate millet talks about um henry millet's henry miller's sexes and norman mailer's an american dream um especially these two books she is talking about how the sexuality and the body of a woman actually becomes a way for uh, for for masculinity to creating a cer- certain kind of uh, a powerful representation of itself and the casualty with which masculinity can do that it is available for masculinity to do that is basically problematic The third book that she talks about Jean Genet's autobiographical novel The Thief's Journal is very very interesting and um I would urge you guys to at least read the bio uh, read the summary of these three texts and um after that I can have a short discussion about these three texts and the way that Kate Millett talks about them specifically before you've read them I would definitely not be able to talk about them that is going to be another short lecture so I'm going to skip this part for now and I'm going to come to the way in which Kate Millett this is on page number 42 in the book 42 onwards the way in which Kate Millett talks about are the three divisions that Millett also um you know creates for sexual politics she says one is the ideological level at which sexual politics works the the second is the biological level at which sexual politics works and the third is a sociological level at which sexual politics works now the ideological level according to kate millet is a socialization now this is where uh, the temperament the role and the status status of all uh, people or or of men or women is actually created the status of man is superior to woman leading to the formation of gender roles the status of women is defined by passivity ignorance docility virtue ineffectuality now this basically means that these are the ideas the ideologies which um, which create a certain sense of social stereotype or social stereotype identities which then people take on and start um uh, performing and repeating in their own lives the fact that women are supposed to be passive they're supposed to be docile they're supposed to be well mannered as compared to boys they're supposed to be interested in domesticity they're supposed to be interested for example in shopping and in the care of their physical well being these are all ideas these are all stereotypes at an ideological level but if you look around them you can easily see that almost all women barring very very few exceptions 
almost all women will fit into these categories it cannot be a fluke or it cannot be a coincidence that that is so the fact that all women behave in exactly the same ways in exactly the same kind of social stimulus social condition social situations is because they are taught that there are certain ways in which women should function there are certain ways in which they should act and react to certain kinds of social stimulus and that's what they end up doing and the same is true of men as well masculinity as well that is how it functions at an ideological at the level of ideas or ideologies the biological level is the second thing that she talks about now this is very very interesting simon de beauvoir also talks about this and um Kate Millett also says that uh, patriarchy actually says that male supremacy lies in physical strength. Now there is a very interesting paradox here. <laughs> if patriarchy or if men have more power in patriarchy because they can do more things because they have physical strength, then if you just transpose the same idea into a slightly different um, hierarchy, which is that of economy, then you would see that uh, men and the economic hierarchy whether you look at the people down below or in the base or in the superstructure as marx calls it it's only men women have almost no place in the economic machinery because very rarely now it's slightly different but when marx was talking about it very rarely did women's labor was actually um you know um, reciprocated by mon- by by monetary value of what it was worth but anyway so if you look at the economic machinery men who have physical strength or men who do work or whose labor is predicated on physical strength are actually the unskilled labor and they are part of the base or of the proletariat people who do actually physical work it is only men who do intellectual work whose labor is part of the superstructure their labor actually gets more money in return its value in monetary terms is much higher and yet when you start talking about patriarchy one of the basic distinctions that are given is men have more influence because they have more physical strength now kate millet also talks about it and buffar also talks about it and buffar actually gives scientific evidence to the fact that there is definitely a difference in the way that men and women uh, you know men and women uh, bodies are actually created or they usually are you know they they form they formed but a lot of the difference that comes about in physical strength is also sociological because from the very beginning men are encouraged to play more sports women are encouraged to stay indoors if you even if you see toddlers um and uh, there are a lot of very very good examples of this in another book that i keep on quoting constantly the equality illusion by kate banyard i have the book those of you who are interested i can loan it to you whenever we are able to meet in the class or, or you can get your own copy and you can read it it's an interesting book it's not very difficult at all so there uh, if you even if you look at toddlers even if you look at kids who are very small uh boys would be uh, boys usually engage in activities which are more physical in nature they are more rowdy as they as, as you know the, that word usually comes up in a lot of places girls usually play with tea sets they play with barbie dolls they usually sedentary they sit in one place like good girls if they are the ones who are running around who are making a mess who are usually uh, engaging in physical activity they are usually condemned they are told girls don't behave that way and that's fairly fair that's fairly common 
and the same trend continues up to um, you know up to the time that they become um, you know uh, uh, youngsters or they, they or they become adults i mean even in your own homes how many of you would be able to say that their mothers uh, from the time when they were teenagers or from the time that they got married or even today uh, engage in any kind of activity or engage in any kind of physical exercise except perhaps walking right uh, because women don't engage in sports especially mothers don't engage in sports fathers would still if they don't do it of their own accord it's different but at least they have the option there would at least be a significant number of um, you know adult men who engage in physical activity who exercise and uh, even for those who don't the idea is not bizarre to imagine at least i'm not saying that somebody stops women physically uh from going out and exercising if they want to do so they can definitely do so a lot of them can some of them would not be allowed but a lot of them can but at least the idea would not be bizarre in the case of men and that's basically how uh, you know these ideas or these stereotypes work at an ideological level so um that is another thing that um kate millet talks about she says the difference in anatomy and physiology that is also a social construct right terms such as male and female related to sex masculine and feminine correspond to gender this is what i've been talking about on i'm on page number 44 so on and so forth and she also talks about how aggression becomes a result of masculine identity men have to be aggressive um any bollywood movie that you pick up if the gundas come and if they hire us a, a woman she never responds but the man goes the hero goes and he beats them up so one so aggression and righteous aggression right which is justified which is validated is seen as um as 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 an essential part of what it is to be a man to be able to protect the woman his woman his children his property and so on and so forth and we're going to come to the idea of women as property when we talk about women and law later on uh, at a sociological level um this is very important she says the sociological level um uh, patriarchy functions through uh, the family so what happens in the family is um that for most of 20th century philosophers including marx including freud um darwin as well as einstein even the einstein doesn't talk in sociological terms but at least for the rest of the three the family becomes a social unit uh, which is seen as a representation of or which is seen as a microcosm of the larger social structure so whatever happens at the family unit is a representation of what would also happen at the larger social uh, level at the level of community at the level of uh, regionalism at the level of the country even right so when children grow up seeing the same kind of gender roles being repeated in their homes they are not surprised that the same gender roles and an extension of the same kind of stereotypes should be seen in society so the first uh, space of indoctrination in a certain sense or the first space of the naturalization of this division of genders occurs at the level of family because you look at your own parents you look at your own uncles aunts grandparents living through the same kind of stereotypical identities and seeing that they actually do seem to project they do seem to show a certain kind of um you know uh, acceptance of these kind of stereotypes and even happiness 
in the performance of these kind of stereotypes mothers are very happy when they can cook for their sons and for their daughters and that's what they live to do and you have archie's cards to prove that there is no other sacrifice like a woman's sacrifice like a mother's sacrifice and if there isn't god then there is mother and so on and so forth or the same kind of masculine stereotypes uh, fathers don't really work at home brothers don't really work at home or the stereotype that all boys are sloppy they don't know how to do the work that's why they don't do the work um and they're good at economics they're good at machinery boys usually start um you know driving cars much earlier than women do because men are usually good with machinery all of these are you know sort of soft influences ways in which these stereotypes get influenced and because people think that it's normal for these kind of stereotypes to exist these are not really challenged people don't really think that these need to be challenged because as a system it's been working for a very long time and on the surface nothing seems to be wrong but discrimination is discrimination in one way or another and the first step to perhaps um, having an opinion about how the system functions is to be able to understand exactly what the system is so that's basically what she's talking about here now the say the next part that uh, millet talks about is class she says that it might seem at certain levels in certain in certain senses might seem that economic status actually supersedes sexual status in the society uh, and she gives an example she says that a poor white chair cropper uh would actually um uh, he would not have as much money as perhaps a black doctor or a lawyer because doctors and lawyers necessarily have more money but just having more money doesn't necessarily mean that they would have the same kind of higher status and white share cropper uh would have the same kind of an authoritative or a hierarchical um um you know um authority over his wife or over the women in his family that a black lawyer would have and even when men um resist or masculinity resists hierarchies and oppressions in other places hierarchies of class or of caste it becomes very very naturalized that that same uh, kind of hegemonic or the same kind of oppressive hierarchies should exist in their own homes because masculinity has the power over femininity and it seems okay to be able to do that right then she talks about the economic and the educational level um and she picks up a lot of very important ideas um she says the kind of employment open to women in modern patriarchies are with few exceptions menial ill paid and without status and even if women work outside i'm i'm on page number 45 now they have to provide domestic and personal service to their patriarchal heads and this is a very pertinent idea and she's talking about in 1970s and it isn't as if anything has changed in the last 50 years we're in 2020 now and it isn't as if for women who work now they um they are exempt from domestic work or because they are able to provide the same kind of monetary even women who have high paying jobs higher paying jobs when they come back home it's it still is their job to take care of the house to clean the house to look after the servants manage the servants to make sure that the house is well stocked with all kinds of necessities to still cook for the family that is still considered to be um that is still considered to be something that women should be proud of and men should be ashamed of and uh, in very few places does this kind of an economic independence so patriarchy has been saying for a very long time that men have more importance uh, because 
uh, women and men have complementary roles that's the pacifist form of uh, or that's the moderate form of patriarchy when they say that men and women have different kinds of roles right men earn the money and women run the house so when women start running when women also start earning the money then uh, do men also start running the house it still doesn't work that way because again because of the politicization of labor because it is usually seen or it is usually thought that uh, doing domestic work is um, it, it actually takes away from the respect of men it is actually dishonorable for men to do that but it is uh, it is it is proud it is some it is a matter of pride for most women it's that kind of politicization which leads to this kind of distinction and economic um you know independence has not changed that for a lot of urban women and for rural women who don't have access to education so that they can go and they can at least um get education enough to be able to earn money for themselves the you know even this kind of discussion doesn't hold any importance or any water for them because they can't really um, you know they can't do uh, they they can't they don't even have access to economic independence of that sorts right um after that she talks about um how violence is at the core of a system and violence is not just physical violence uh in uh, in the representation of rape domestic violence wife beating so on and so forth in which men consider it to be psychologically and technologically equipped to perpetrate physical violence one uh, we've already had this discussion in the last chapter when we were talking about marital rape and how it is considered to be completely uh, against all manners of logic a man cannot actually rape his wife so considering women and their own physical space to be um to be part of a man's or masculinity's occupied space authoritative space is another way in which uh, the sense of individuality is denied to a lot of women of course there are going to be exceptions to it but um, this does happen then she talks about anthropological which is a level of myth and religion in which um, again we have talked about a lot of these ideas we've already talked about in the last chapter so i'm just going to just reiterate one or two things how the man is considered to be the central identity the masculine identity is a central identity the female or the feminine identity is the one relative to the masculine identity so she is considered to be the other or the alien or the inferior uh, how women's menstruation is politicized how it's considered to be a curse women have in christianity it is seen as um, you know when eve actually fell and adam fell because of eve those of you who are uh, aware of that that particular story so the original curse the original fall um, the original sin was that of the woman and because of that she has the pain of menstruation she has the pain of childbirth that's the punishment and when the punishment when when a biological certainty or when a biological um you know um biological act not even act but a biological fact like menstruation or childbirth when they become politicized in mythology there's very little that can be done or that can be said to reverse it because menstruation is part of a, of the biological identity of a woman and that's not going to go away anywhere but when this kind of mythology is wrapped around it and when that becomes a way in which women are considered to be impure they're considered to be lesser than men they're considered to be less human than men um 
and when this becomes indoctrinated it, it becomes very difficult to um, oppose this way it becomes very difficult to have a mature or an or, or an understanding conversation about this as well so um, she does go on to talk about some other things also most of which on page number 48 we have already talked about please take a look at it these are not things these are not really things which require a lot of in-depth discussion so i am going to uh, stop here as always uh, if you have any questions if you want to discuss something in uh, in detail please let me know um, my email address and my phone number um, both of them are easily available